If you have your Bible this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to the gospel according to Mark, and we'll be in the ninth chapter, Mark chapter 9. And today we come to the last message in our series where we've just focused on how great and amazing Jesus is. And we've walked through the gospel of Mark, and we've seen Jesus from several different perspectives, and from every perspective, we learn the same lesson, Jesus is amazing. Today we're going to learn or be reminded that Jesus is a servant. Now that may not sound like the most amazing thing to you right now, but my prayer is by the end of this message, you will appreciate how wonderful a thing it is to be able to say that Jesus is a servant. So we'll look at two passages, one in Mark chapter nine, and then another passage describing another event in Mark chapter 10. Uh, I, I use both of these passages because they really are focused on almost exactly the same thing. Something happened in Mark chapter 9, and then the very next day, it seems to happen again in Mark chapter 10. And this event that happens these two days, this dialogue between Jesus and the disciples, was something that seemed to happen repeatedly through the gospel accounts, through the ministry of Jesus. And so this is something that we should focus on. So Mark chapter 9, let's begin reading in verse 33. It says, they, speaking of Jesus and the disciples, they came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? And so Jesus and the disciples have gone to Capernaum. It's uh, right on the Sea of Galilee. If we, as we've talked about the last few weeks, much of Christ's ministry happened around this a medium-sized lake, I guess we would call it. Capernaum was on the northwest corner of the lake. And Peter and Andrew, their home was in Capernaum. So probably they've gone back to Peter's house. And so it was a very familiar place. In fact, the Galilean ministry began right there in Capernaum. This is the end of the Galilean ministry, and it ends right where it started. From here, Jesus is going to head to Jerusalem. He is marching toward the cross. Now he'll come back here right at the end of the gospel accounts because just, uh, just an hour or so walk from here is where Jesus restored Peter. Do you remember the story? And uh, Jesus gave Peter breakfast and said, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Three times. That happened just a short uh, walk from here. But they've come back to this, to this home, probably the home of Peter. And Jesus asked the question, what were you guys talking about when you traveled uh, here to Capernaum? They thought they had spoken about something just out of earshot of Jesus. They didn't think Jesus knew, but Jesus knows everything. And so Jesus wants to talk to them about it. So he asked the question, not because he doesn't know, but because he wanted to confront them. Verse 34 says, they were silent because on the way they had been arguing with one another about who was the greatest. And so they're caught, they're embarrassed. They've been talking about, you know, I'm greater than you. No, I'm greater than you. And it's an argument back and forth. In fact, Jesus had just finished talking about the fact that he was gonna die soon and that he was gonna suffer and, and, and die for the sins of the world. And so maybe they were even talking about who was gonna replace Jesus, who was gonna be the spokesperson for the movement after Jesus was gone. But now they're caught and they're embarrassed about this. Verse 35 Sitting down, he, Jesus, called the 12 and said to them, if anyone, now let me stop there. Don't read ahead because I want to tell you something about the next few words. Uh, what you're about to hear is something you've heard a thousand times. If you're a church person, a Bible person, you, th th this isn't going to surprise you, but it should. 
What you're about to hear would have shocked the disciples. What you're about to hear, what Jesus is about to say is so radical. It really turned all of thinking about how to live life uh, on its ear. It, it, it turned everything around. And so when we read these next few words, I want you to appreciate how shocking this was. And so uh, we start back at verse 35. Sitting down, he called the 12 and said to them, if anyone wants to be first, he must be last and servant of all. Jesus said, if you want to be first, and he doesn't criticize ambition here. He doesn't criticize people that want to you know, take a step up. He doesn't criticize people who want to be great or want to have spiritual maturity, people who want to have influence. That's what he's talking about when he says first. He says, that's good. We should all aspire to leave our mark for the kingdom of God. We should all aspire to have great spiritual maturity. But he says, if you want to be first, you've got to be last. The key to being first is to be last. The key to being great is to be a servant. Now, that would have been so radical to the disciples when they heard that. Now, that, that's chapter 9. And so Jesus corrects them. Hopefully they get the message. We'll see in a moment that they didn't. That in order to be first, you have to be a servant. Now let's turn over to Mark chapter 10 and see a very similar story. This is the next day, maybe two days later. And we'll begin reading in verse 35. James and John, those are two disciples. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, approached him, Jesus, and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask. Now, it's interesting, this same account is described in the Gospel of Matthew, and it says there that they came with their mother. And so it's James and John and Mama, and, you know, they're coming to put a little pressure on Jesus. They've got a question. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked them. And they answered, allow us to sit at your right and at your left in your glory. And so they're asking to be uh, number two and number three. They're asking, Jesus, we know that you're first. We want to be second and third. We want to be greater. We want to have a higher position. We want to have more authority. We want to be more significant. That's their request. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? Now, Jesus there, that seems like a strange statement, but Jesus was saying that in order to be in that position, it requires some suffering and some sacrifice. Jesus was saying, for me to be king of kings and lord of lords, I'm going through the crucifixion. I'm going through this terrible baptism of suffering. Are you prepared to uh, experience the sacrifice that's necessary for greatness? And he goes on in the next few verses and he says more about that. But look at verse 41. It says, when the 10 disciples heard this, they began to be indignant with James and John. So the rest of the disciples are offended that James and John went to do this. But they probably weren't offended that James and John would dare uh, to, uh, to try to be first because the, the disciples had done the very same thing the chapter before and they're going to do it again before all of this is said and done. What they're indignant about is that they didn't think of it first. <laughs> so James and John sort of getting a step ahead of them. They don't like it. There's discord amongst the disciples. Verse 42, Jesus called them over and said to them, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. So that's how, the, that's how lost people act. 
But, verse 43, it is not so among you. On the contrary, and here's this statement again, this radical statement, whoever wants to become great among you will be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave to all. If you underline things in your Bible, those last three words are the key words there, a slave to all. That's the key to being first, significant, mature in the kingdom of God. And then verse 45, Jesus offers himself as the example. He says, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The theme of these two events, and really the theme of all of the gospel accounts, is that Jesus is a servant. Now that should amaze us, that Jesus, who is the creator of the universe, the Bible says, Jesus, who has all power and all knowledge, Jesus, who has existed eternally, Jesus has come to be a servant. Isn't that amazing? We'll see all of what that means in a moment, uh, but that should just stun us and amaze us Jesus is a servant. So if being a servant, if this servant living lifestyle is so important to Jesus, it ought to be important to us. So let me look back at these verses that we've read and share with you just three or four reasons why it's important that we be servants. Why is it important that we embrace servant living? Well, first, because it is God's measuring stick for greatness and spiritual maturity. So the world has its ways of measuring greatness, right? The world has its way to take a measure of a man or a woman. Maybe we would measure someone by their success. How successful have they been in their career, in their job? How uh, popular are they? How wealthy are they? Do they have a position of authority? Uh, we, we would measure that way. But what the Bible says and what we've learned in these two passages is that God uses a different measuring stick altogether. That God doesn't measure us by our wealth, our popularity, or even the success that we might have achieved. No, he measures us by our servanthood. When God looks at a man, when God looks at a woman and he is sizing that person up, God uses the measuring stick of service. That's what's important to God. In fact, it says, chapter 10, verse 42, that we read a moment ago, that the Gentiles measure the other way, the world measures the other way, but he said in, in Mark 9, 35, that Jesus measures us by our service. Why should servant living be important to us? Because that's the measuring stick that God uses to measure our spiritual maturity, to measure our significance in the kingdom of God. The second reason it ought to be important is because Jesus is the example of servant living. Jesus lived like a servant, and the Bible says we should imitate Christ, right? And so if this is one of the biggest things, one of the, one of the most descriptive things you could say about Jesus, that he is a servant, then the same thing should be said of us. Now, in Philippians chapter 2, there's a, there's a passage, probably the classic passage in the Bible about what it means to be a servant. And it's about eight verses long. We'll look at those verses in a moment. But right in the middle of that description of servanthood and that admonition to live a life like that, it says this, verse five, listen to this. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. 
He's talking about being a servant. And right in the middle, he wants us to know that we ought to imitate Christ. If Christ is a servant, then we should be a servant. It's interesting, in that passage, like I said, about eight verses, you see the middle verse, verse 5. But following that verse, there is a description of what it looked like that Jesus was a servant. And let me just read this to you. And, and this is, some scholars say, some theologians say, the richest passage in the Bible. And so we're going to give it about two minutes, and we won't do it justice. But, but listen to this. Verse 5, we've already noted, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And now here's the attitude. Verse 6, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Now what that means is Jesus was God. He was in the form of God. He was God. But he didn't see his status as God as an opportunity to benefit himself. He didn't see his power and his authority as an opportunity to benefit himself, but rather he saw it as an opportunity to do something different. And that's in verses 7 and 8. It says, instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. What, he, what it says is that Jesus, he had the status of God and he saw that not as an opportunity to benefit himself, but he saw that as an opportunity to become a servant and benefit other people. That's amazing. We want to talk about how wonderful is Jesus. Jesus is wonderful. He took his status, and he used it for our benefit. Now imagine if somehow right now we could crown you as king or we could crown you as queen of all the world and it, and it, uh, it was real. So you were the boss of everybody. You were the boss of everybody around you. You were the boss of your spouse. You were the boss of your kids, finally. You were the boss of your parents if you're young. You're the boss at work. You're the boss at the bank. You're the boss everywhere. Everybody in the world had to do everything you said. You owned it all. You controlled it all. You were the king or the queen of the world. Now, if we could make that happen, what would you do with that power? Most of us would use it to benefit us, right? I can already think of some things I would get done for me if I had that kind of power. Now, Jesus did have that power. He was God. He is God. But he used it not as an opportunity to benefit himself, but to serve other people. Jesus is the model, and we should imitate Christ. Why is it important that we live a servant lifestyle? Well, because Jesus lived a servant lifestyle. The third reason is that God promises eternal rewards for those whose life is characterized by the activity and the attitude of a servant. And we, we won't look at all the verses, but the Bible says that in eternity we'll be rewarded. And everybody won't be rewarded like everybody else. There will be a, a different quality of life in eternity. Now, eternity will be a wonderful life for every believer because Jesus is there. But there will be some differences. There are rewards that matter. And the Bible says over and over and over that God has special rewards only for those who lived as servants, servants. Now, the fourth reason why this should be important to us is because servant living demonstrates a genuine trust in God. 
You know, the chief reason that we, that we push ourselves to the front in life, the chief reason that we pursue uh, power or authority or success or influence, the chief reason we do those things is to take care of ourselves. right? I want to take care of me and my family. And so I feel like sometimes I've got to push. I need to be the leader. I need to be out front because I need to take care of me. But what we do when we're a servant is we are demonstrating that at the end of the day, we trust God to take care of us. I mean, if God is going to take care of me, then I'm freed up to serve people, right? But if I don't believe, if I don't trust that God will take care of me and I got to take care of myself, then I'm not concerned about serving you. I'm, I'm concerned about me. But if we really trust, then we can serve. In fact, our service is evidence that we trust the Lord. I love the way the book of James says it. In James chapter four, verse eight, it says, humble yourselves before the Lord. That means just come before the Lord and don't bring anything with you. That means don't come with your pride, don't come with your success, don't come with all of your uh, begging for this and begging for that. Just humble yourself before the Lord and what'll happen? And he will exalt you. Some Bible translations say he will exalt you in due time. God will take care of you when you need to be taken care of. You can trust him. And one of the ways we show that we trust him is by serving the people around us rather than putting ourselves first. So if service and servant living is so important, why is it so hard? And it is hard, right? It's hard. If you would just be honest, this is hard. My temptation is to think about me first and foremost, to, to not think about the people around me, to not think about their needs and their interests and their preferences. We're just wired up. It's about us. Why is this so hard? It was hard for the disciples. So they had at this point, Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 10, they had spent two and a half years with Jesus. He had been teaching on this over and over and over for two and a half years. They had watched him model servant living for two and a half years. They still didn't get it. I mean, they didn't even come close to getting it. This is the hardest part of the Christian life. This is the calculus four. This is the organic chemistry class for the Christian life. And, and, and if, if we're going to be mature, if we're going to be spiritually mature, this is where it happens. This is where we've got to learn some lessons. This is where we have to uh, have spiritual strength. We must learn to be servants. It's hard, but this is the mark of spiritual maturity. So I want to take a few minutes and show you from Scripture how do we become servants. What are the steps? What are the elements in living a servant lifestyle? Now, I'll tell you before we get started that you're not going to like any of these points, okay? Nobody's going to come up afterwards and say, oh, that was an inspirational message. There's nothing inspirational about this. This is going to be hard. This is going to be difficult. You're not going to like any of it. But this is the key to being a servant. This is the key to spiritual maturity. This is the key to living a life that truly honors the Lord. How can we be a servant? Number one, defend no preference. Defend no preference. What does it mean at the very basic level? What does it mean to serve somebody? To serve somebody means that you put their needs, their interests, their preferences ahead of yours. 
You know, there's certain things you need, there's certain interests you have, there's certain preferences, but to serve somebody means you put their interests, needs, preferences ahead of yours. Yours are second, theirs are first. You know, sometimes in church we use this, um, uh, well, we take the word joy, you probably, if you've been around church very, very long, you've heard people do this. We take the word joy and we, and, and we make it an acronym each letter stands for something, and we say joy reminds us, the word J-O-Y reminds us that the key to joy or the key to service is Jesus first. You've heard this before, right? Others, J stands for Jesus, O stands for others. Jesus first, others second, yourself third. You heard that before? That's exactly true, okay? That's, that, that is a, a true expression of the theology of Scripture. The key to service is Jesus first, others second, yourself third. But the key part of that is that others come before self, that you put the needs, interests, preferences of others ahead of your own. You don't defend your preferences. You let their preferences go first. In order for us to truly serve, we have to put others first. Now, we're talking about attitude. We're going to talk about actions in just a moment. But our attitude, if we have a servant's attitude, we, we're putting the preferences of others first. Now, let me go back to that passage in Philippians 2. And we said that middle verse, Philippians 2, 5, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And we looked at the verses that followed it. Now, let me show you the verses that precede it. Just, just two verses, and these are important. Verse 3 says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. There it is. J-O-Y, Jesus, others, yourself. Consider the needs, preferences, and interests of other people as more important than your own. And then the next verse, verse 4, it says, Everyone should look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. And this is repeated throughout the Bible. This isn't just some rare spot in the Bible that it gives this unusual command. Now we also see it in Romans 15.1 where it says, now we who are strong have an obligation to bear the weaknesses of those without our strength and not please ourselves. And so even if I'm strong and there are weak people around me, I should still put the interests, preferences, and needs of the weak people ahead of my own. 1 Corinthians 13, 5 says, love is not self-seeking. Uh, Jesus said in Mark 12, 31, the second most important commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. 1 Corinthians 10, 24 says, no one is to seek his own good, but seek the good of the other person. But the best expression is in Romans 12, 10. So listen to this. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters and outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. So you, you're in relationship with somebody. Uh, maybe you're a family member. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a friend at church. Maybe it's just an acquaintance. You ought to, you ought to be battling them to try to honor them more than they honor you outdo one another. Be in a little bit of a, a battle here. Outdo each other in showing honor. I, I looked that verse up in some other translations because I wanted to see how, how it's said in different ways. In, in the NASB, it says, give preference to one another. In the NLT, it says, take delight in honoring each other. Let me tell you how this works on, in my relationship with my wife. She's not in this service, so I can be just frank and honest with you. Um, 
don't tell her that I said any of this, but first, I love my wife, and I love going out on dates with her. We've been dating for 25 or 26 years, and we try to go out on a date every week. We don't always get it, but we usually do. If it's a normal date, we stay here in Nacogdoches. If it's a really, really fancy date, we go to Lufkin. <laughs> Uh, but occasionally, we'll get a chance to go to Houston or Dallas, and, and we'll have a, a, you know, a real nice night together. And so I'll, I'll tell you uh, about the conversation on the drive from here to Houston. So we get on the drive, and we've got to settle one question. Do you know what it is? Where are we going to eat? And so it usually starts, the question starts you know, somewhere between here and Lufkin, and, and she'll ask it first, where are we going to eat? And I say, well, it doesn't matter to me. Where would you like to eat? And then she says, it's a good thing Houston is a long ways away because this takes a while. She says, well, I don't care. Where do you want to eat? And I say, well, I don't care. Where do you want to eat? So that gets us to die ball. Okay, we're back and forth, <laughs> back and forth. And then we get, you know, in the more serious conversation. And I'll say, no, really, I, I don't have a preference. Uh, I, I want to go wherever you want to go. And then and so that, you know, that gets us down to humble or so. And then finally, she'll pick a place. So we've been dating over 25 years. I have yet to pick a restaurant, okay? Now, I don't want you to think uh, wrongly. It's not that she's a better picker than me, okay? When I'm by myself, I pick restaurants just fine, and I go to much better restaurants than she picks. She is not <laughs> the better picker. Now, the second thing that you should know is that it's not that I don't have a preference, I am praying through this whole conversation that she'll pick the restaurant that I want to go to <laughs> because I absolutely have a preference for which restaurant. But here, here's, the, here's the heart of the matter. I've learned in 25 years of dating her that the, my greatest joy is in her enjoying the date. Does that make sense? I get more pleasure from her enjoying the food than I get from the food. Now, she would say the same thing. That's why we battle, and I win or lose, depending on your perspective, but that's why we battle in trying to get the other person to pick the restaurant. Now, it seems like a silly illustration, but now apply that to every part of life. That's what it means when it says we should outdo one another in, in, in showing honor. This is the attitude of a servant, not that you're defending your rights I've got a right. It is my turn. No, our attitude should be, I'm going to outdo the other person in showing honor. No, defend no preference. Now, the second thing we must do if we're going to, if we're going to be a servant is to seek no recognition. So now we're transitioning from our attitude, defend no preference, uh, to action. Seek no recognition. Let's talk about the action, the activity of, uh, of being a servant. Now, when you serve, sometimes you serve for uh, somebody else's good. Your service is primarily about benefiting somebody else. But let's just be honest. Sometimes when we serve, the primary purpose is not somebody else. It's us. We serve for our own benefit. Now, whatever is your motive, that makes all of the difference. It's not real service 
if you're serving for what you get out of it, if you're serving because it benefits you in some way, if you're serving because you want to be well thought of by other people, okay, that's benefiting you. Even if you serve because it makes you feel good, that's not a valid reason to serve. We, it, all those things may happen, but the point of our service needs to be to benefit other people. We should seek no recognition. Here's how Jesus said it. Matthew 6, 1. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others. Your righteousness, that would be serving somebody. That would be an act of righteousness. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, why doesn't God reward service if we did it so that people would see it? Well, because it's not service. God only honors service if it's service. And if you're serving so that people will notice that you're serving, then it's not service and God doesn't honor it. Now, that doesn't mean that all of our service has to be secret. Uh, Jesus uh, often served in very public ways. That's, that's what we read of in the gospel. Uh, the apostles served and many of the times it was a very public way. We see that in the Bible. So all service doesn't have to be secret, but it all has to be with the right motive. We must serve for the benefit of others. Let me give you four questions. If you're asking one of these questions while you're serving, you're not serving. Question number one, how is this going to benefit me? That's, you're not serving. How am I going to be recognized? Will people know who deserves the credit? When it's all said and done, are people going to know I'm the one that did this? Will I be upset if the work isn't noticed or I'm not praised. We ought to be doing, listen church, at least some of our service in complete secrecy. Every one of us, if we're honest, we would have to admit we struggle with motives. We struggle with, I did this, but why did I really do it? And the way to grow past that, the way to have success is to do some things that nobody knows about. Now, do some things that people know about. That'll happen, of course. But do something that somebody doesn't know about. How often in the last two months, how many times have you served and nobody knows that you did it? Now, don't take pride in your answer if, if it's many times, but let that answer, good or bad, motivate you to seek no recognition. Now, the third thing, if we're going to be servants, we have to set no limits. Set no limits. I think the best example of how Jesus never set limits in his service was to look at something that happened uh, a few weeks after these events when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and he washed the feet of the disciples. Are you familiar with that story? Uh, this is right near the end of Christ's life and they're in the upper room and he washes their feet. It's recorded in John 13 and Oftentimes, I think we think about that in ceremonial terms. We think of that as some nice ceremony. But it wasn't a ceremonial thing. It was dirty and it was disgusting. It was, it was the work of the lowest servant. And now, the disciples, you just have to know, had not had a pedicure in a long time. Okay? They didn't wear socks. They didn't wear closed-toed shoes. They didn't have pretty dainty little feet. They had gnarly fisherman feet. And they had been walking around in sweaty sandals on dirt roads. This was a terrible job, but Jesus did it. Why? Because he set no limits 
in his service. Too many times we set limits. We say there's certain things I just won't do or there's certain people I just won't serve. Jesus washed the disciples' feet. That, that should blow our minds. But really, it's even greater than it seems. Now, the story of Jesus washing the feet starts in John 13, 3. But it's the first two verses of John 13 that really set the scene for the event. And I'll read one of those to you, verse 2. It says, now, when it was time for supper, the devil had already put in the heart of Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, to betray him. So Jesus, when he was washing the disciples' feet, not only did he have to put up with the sweat and the dirt and the stink, but he gets to his betrayer, Judas, and he knows it's his betrayer. I mean, it was one thing to wash Peter's stinky feet, and it was another thing to wash John's stinky feet, but he comes to, to uh, uh, Judas, and he knows that Judas has sold his friendship with Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He knows that Judas has been dishonest with him and has betrayed his confidence and his trust, that Judas has stabbed him in the back, and he knows that he's going to be arrested because of what Judas has done and ultimately crucified. So he gets to Judas. Now, what would you have done if you had known that? I'm telling you, that's where I would have drawn the line. It was one thing with Peter, and it was one thing with John, but I'm not washing the feet of the one who is in the process of betraying me. I would have said no. But Jesus set no limits. Isn't that amazing? Set no limits. So many times we are so concerned with finding some way to serve that fulfills us and that meets all of our needs, and that we enjoy and are passionate about. And, th and that's good. We should do all of those things. And I hope you find some way to serve that just sort of lights your fuse. But that can't be how, in general, how we decide where, where and when we're going to serve. The pattern in the Bible is people just served. You don't find that other pattern really ever in the, in the New Testament. No, when, when they needed people to wait tables at the first church, in the first church, they chose uh, the leading men of the community to come in and do that. Here in this foot washing, we see the leading man of history washing the feet of the disciples. Not because that's what he was passionate about, but because he had a servant's heart. We never need to set limits. I'll tell you a story that I hesitate to tell because it, it certainly does not put me in a good light, but, but I've wrestled with this before in a serious way in my ministry. When I served in my first church as a senior pastor, there was some real opposition. I guess the only time in my ministry I've ever faced real opposition, and it was significant. It was probably half the church. And it was over a racial issue. It was over the question of who uh, would be allowed to attend the church and who would not based on the color of their skin. And, and it got bad. And things were said and meetings were held, public and private. Uh, we were threatened. My wife was threatened. Uh, I can't even tell you some of the things that went on. It was, uh, it was a fight. And I thought, I don't, Lord, I don't, I don't know why you called me to be a pastor. This is terrible. But we went through that, and I just got embittered against probably half the church. And um, I didn't want to be their pastor. I, I, I did my job, and I, 
I was passionate about the other half of the people, but I'll just be honest, I didn't like those people. I didn't believe they were saved. I thought they were depraved and ungodly. I didn't like the things they did. I didn't like what they did to my family. And I don't know that I've ever disliked someone so passionately. And as a result, I didn't really care. And you know, those people had crises like everybody else and they'd call their pastor and I, I, I did my job, but my heart wasn't in it and I didn't do any more than I had to. I would think when I'd get a phone call from one of those guys and he'd tell me about some tragedy that happened to his family, I didn't ever say this and I'm embarrassed to tell you, but I'll tell you what went through my mind. You call someone whose wife you haven't threatened because this guy doesn't care. And that was my attitude until I came across this passage of scripture and was praying through it. And God taught me that service sets no limits. And God reminded me that when Jesus got to Judas, he didn't draw a line. He washed his feet. And God reminded me that when Jesus came to me, guilty of sin, guilty of rebelling against God, God didn't draw a line with me either. God served Judas and God served Noel Deer when Jesus died on the cross for me. Service doesn't set limits. And God taught me that if I was going to be a servant, I couldn't pick and choose what that meant or who that was for. And through that, God won the hearts of most of those people and um, just in miraculous ways. But it started with God teaching this difficult to embrace lesson. Service sets no limits. Now the final thing, if we're gonna be a servant, we must protect no treasure. Now what, what treasure do we have? Well, uh, the three primary treasures we all have uh, we have some time, right? And we have some energy and we have some resources. Those are the three treasures. We probably all wish we had more of each of those, but we all have at least some. We have some time, we have some energy, we have some treasure. Uh, to, to serve means that we don't seek to protect those things, but we seek to invest those things in the lives of other people. When I wake up in the morning, I, I start my day with a lot of stress, and I'm trying to do better, uh, but I have a to-do list, a task list, and I look at my task list, and there are more things on that list. There are more things I think I should do and more people I think I should contact than there are hours in the day to get it done. That's my life seven days a week. It's probably your life. I'm no busier than anybody else, but I look at that list, and I start my day defeated. There's no way. Now, that's not how the Lord wants us to live. Where's the disconnect? It is because I, we, ordinarily think of our treasure as something we have to protect. That I have limited resources and limited time and limited energy, and I've got to protect that for me, and I'm reluctant. It is stressful to give that to somebody else. But to, but to be a servant 
means that we understand that the treasure that we have is not ours to protect. It is given to us as a trust. It is given to us for us to steward, to manage, and to invest in other people. I don't have time for me that I need to protect it for me. I have time so I can bless other people. I don't have resources and energy for me so that I have to protect it. I have energy and resources so I can bless other people. And when you have that shift and you understand it's not for you to protect, it's for you to distribute, well, then the stress goes down and the joy goes up. Let me tell you, this will be a silly illustration perhaps, but I hope it, it, it helps us to understand this morning early, I went to McDonald's, and uh, Chick-fil-A is not open on Sundays, and they're not open early in the morning, so McDonald's was the restaurant of choice, and uh, I went through the drive-thru, I ordered an Egg McMuffin. You, you eat Egg McMuffins? And so I, I drove up to the, to the window, and there was a very nice lady there, and I gave her uh, a few dollars, and she gave me an Egg McMuffin. Now, uh, I, I want to tell you a little bit about that exchange because I think we can learn something there. And I, I even wrote some notes when I got here to the office. First of all, she had no problem handing me the sandwich. She didn't seem nervous about it. She didn't seem uneasy about it. She just handed it to me. No stress. She didn't seem stressed about it at all. Secondly, she didn't hesitate. Uh, she didn't ask what my plans were for the sandwich she didn't ask whether or not I really needed an Egg McMuffin or maybe I should be eating a piece of fruit. Uh, she didn't say, well, listen, I'll give you half now. You come back, and if you've been responsible with the first half, maybe I'll give you the other half. She didn't act like I was taking something that was hers. She didn't say, oh, I, I can't, I'm giving away like my last Egg McMuffin. She, she, she didn't try to protect her supply of Egg McMuffin. She just gave it to me. Now, I promise I'll make a spiritual point with this. That's the attitude that we need to have with all of our treasure, our time and our energy and our resources. See, see this lady wasn't trying to protect her, her pile of, of muffins back there. She wanted, she, she, she didn't see them as her muffins to start with. She, she thinks her role is just to hand out the muffins to the people who come by. We need to see that the treasure that God has given us is for us to use to serve our family, to use to serve our friends and our church and the kingdom of God and people in our neighborhood and our people in our workplace. We're not to hoard it. We're not to protect it. That's not our role. We are to distribute it. And when we distribute it, when we say, I will protect no treasure, then our stress will go down and our joy will go up. That's what it means to be a servant. I, I want to show you a quick video. And I know I'm out of time, but I, I don't want to skip this. Uh, a quick video that, that really helps put this in perspective. Sometimes it's a difficult choice, but we have to look at what we have and see it not as a way to bless us. And so we protect what we have, whether it's an opportunity or a time but we see it as something God has given to us to bless other people. So I want to show you a quick two-minute video. Robertson McQuilkin, uh, he was president of Columbia Bible Institute and Seminary. Uh, he was, at the time, a New Testament scholar of world renown. He was an older gentleman, but he really had just finally reached the pinnacle of, uh, of his career. 
Uh, when they look for a New Testament scholar to come in, they never look for a 25-year-old guy, right? I mean, they're looking for somebody who has invested his whole life in the New Testament. And this guy had done this, and he had, he had achieved a certain amount of popularity. And now, for the first time in his life, he was being used all over the world. He was going around and speaking and teaching. He was like the English-speaking person to explain the New Testament, uh, to, uh, to Christians and scholars around the world, he had finally reached this point where it was, it, it was game on. He was going to be used of God in a great way. He had invested his whole life to get there, and finally he was there. But then his wife was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and he had to make a choice. Is he going to serve his wife, or is he going to fulfill this opportunity? And I want you just to see his resignation speech, it's a very brief, um, it's an audio recording that we have, but we have something for you to watch, uh, of his speech as he chose to serve. Let's watch this together. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major <laughs> decisions, but uh, one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one, because circumstances dictated it. Uh, Muriel, now, uh, in the last couple of months, seems to be almost happy when with me and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped, becomes very fearful, sometimes almost terror, and when she can't get to me, there can be anger, she's in distress. But when I'm with her, She's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part. And I'm a man of my word. But as I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing she sacrificed for me for 40 years to make my life possible. So, if I cared for her for 40 years, I'd still be in debt. However, there's much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She's a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. That was, that was 1990. In 1993, his wife quit recognizing him, but he stayed at her bedside another 10 years, and she died in 2003. You see, if we're going to be servants, it means that we protect no treasure, but we give it away to the people that God's put in our life. How are you giving it away? to your spouse, to your family, to your church, to the Lord? How are you giving it away to people in your workplace or your school or your neighborhood? I want to just reread a couple of verses, two or three verses, and we'll close. Uh, we read verse 43 of chapter 10 a moment ago. I'm going to read from the middle of the verse. It says, on the contrary, however, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you will be a slave 
to all. You know, a slave is someone who has no property, no rights, no volition, no agenda. It belongs to somebody else. The words were chosen carefully. He says we're to be a slave to everybody. But Jesus has not asked more of us than he would ask of himself. He's the model. The next verse says, for even the son of man, Jesus, did not come to be served. I'm not here to be served. You're not here to be served. He did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What was the ultimate way Jesus served us? Giving his life as our ransom, paying the penalty for our sins. And so to respond to Jesus, we trust that he has paid the penalty for our sins. We embrace that, surrender to him. But as Christians, if we're already Christians, we honor him and we strive for spiritual maturity when we serve. Heads bowed, eyes closed, let me pray. Father, I pray you make us servants. I know this is an area that the disciples struggled in. It seems like more than any other area. And I'm convinced I struggled just like they did and that most of us do. Help us to understand this radical truth. Help us to be servants. Father, I, I aspire to be first, not first in front of somebody else, but I, 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 I want to I want to measure up in your eyes. I, I want to be significant for your kingdom. I want, to be, I want to bring honor and glory to you. And I know the pathway to that is service. Teach us all that lesson. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.